Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we sit down with Michael Dominguez to talk about his new book, Armchair Real Estate Millionaire. If you're sitting there anyway, you might as well build your wealth. And the most impressive thing about this book, to me, is Michael's story. Because Michael completely changed career paths and his life at the age of 40. And then he went into real estate at that time. And the reason that I love that story is we meet so many Canadians who tell us it is too late for them to get involved with real estate because they're of a certain age. When you hear Michael's story of what he went through and then what he's been able to build for himself and his family now, it's amazing. So we go through his story, we go through his book, and as any real estate investors know when you get together with other real estate investors, you end up sharing some horror stories around real estate. So you will hear us share some horror stories. It doesn't mean we are negative on real estate. In fact, Michael wrote a book on all the positive things on real estate. So stay focused on that. But it is sometimes fun to share the things that you've survived through. And when Nick and I reflect back, Nick actually puts it the best way. When, whenever we kind of complain about something in, in with real estate, one of our properties, when you figure out, how, you know, the equity that you've gained or any appreciation if you're lucky enough for it or for the or the net income on the property for any given year and you divide that by the amount of hours you've spent dealing with the property you realize that dealing with income properties is probably the most valuable or at least one of the most valuable ways that you can spend your time and that always gives us the proper perspective for dealing with the shit that comes with dealing with real estate properties so we're overall positive on real estate of course and I love this book. Uh, Michael does a great job with it. He shares his story. He shares it, things that he's learned with real estate. You will hear that on this episode of the podcast. And listen, if you are listening to this and you love books, you can find more free books at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. One of the ones that doesn't get enough attention is Your Life, Your Terms. That's the name of the book. And the reason we called it that Every chapter of the book is written by a local Canadian real estate investor sharing their stories on what they've done with real estate and why they've done it. So if you're looking for some inspiration or perhaps somebody in your field or career who's dove, you know, dove into real estate, but they're from a totally different career, you might find exactly that in this book. That book has been credited with inspiring a lot of people to start their own journey. And you can get a free copy of the Your Life, Your Terms book at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Michael Dominguez. Michael, am I saying your last name properly? You are. And, uh, he has recently released a book, Armchair Real Estate Millionaire. If you're sitting there anyway, you might as well, might as well build your wealth. Um, and I wanted to bug you about some of the stuff that you've written in the book. But I wanted to start, before we get into your story on how you got into real estate, we were talking just before we started recording here on how the cheapest or best property, or maybe the best way to say it is if the numbers work on paper, maybe it's not always the best property to go after. Nick and I have many stories. We've learned this lesson the, the hard way. But can you explain what you mean by that? Because I think so many real estate investors are always just looking at the numbers. Show me the numbers. 
And I love that you called that out in your book here. So can you talk to us a little bit about that point specifically? Absolutely. Um, that's one of the things. And, and honestly, when I started to invest, I did the same thing you guys did, where I bought based on what it looked like on financial uh, paper and what the cash flow projected to be and all those fun things. And uh, I found shortly after purchasing it that, um, first of all, I had a lot, I purchased a property that needed a lot of work. I had thousands of dollars of deferred maintenance because I wanted to bring the properties up to speed. Uh, my tenant profile was poor. And even if I started to fix them up, uh, I was finding I was still having a hard time attracting quality tenants because typically the property you buy that's in the, that's, that's in rough shape is near a lot of other houses that are in rough shape as well. And so even if you've fixed up your property, you're still not going to attract that quality tenant. And, and that was an aha moment for me is that as I started to grow my portfolio, I found that the properties that I bought that were in quality neighborhoods uh, and uh, I, I renovated them well, I got those quality tenants and it just made my life a whole lot easier. And I didn't have every waking moment sort of imagining the day where I could sell that property and get rid of it because it was such a pain in the neck. And, uh, and that's really how it all came about. And I, and where, I what, what city was that property in? I bought my first two properties. One was in Oshawa and the other one was a sixplex in Coburg. And okay. it's interesting. I, I advocate the two unit dwellings because of the quality tenant profile I could attract. Yet the first property I bought was in fact a sixplex because that's what I was told you were supposed to do. And, uh, and so and it wasn't until a few years later that I realized that there was in fact another way. And, and when I saw everyone else and you, know, you guys are in that same boat, you bought, you start off with these properties that just sounds like the right thing to do. And, and honestly, I can tell you, I like both of us have been in the business a long time. How many people do we know that left the industry and stopped being investors because they had a couple of really bad experiences and then they missed the appreciation wave that we've been experiencing over the last 10, 15 years. I remember people passing me those spreadsheets and saying, if it, I remember the 1% rule, like, I don't know, you know, how the 1% rule, if you're not familiar with it was if the rents are 1% of the purchase price, the monthly rent, if the monthly rent is 1% of the purchase price of the home, you have found a winner. Yeah. And I think I read a book from like Robert Allen about this in the late no. 1990s. Okay. And I found this like 1% rule property with Nick and we buy this thing. Um, I guess right around the year 2000, I can't remember exactly. And, uh, the, 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 the shower in the basement had a, like the shower head was tied to the HVAC, the exposed HVAC with like a hanger, like, you know, the a wire clothes hanger, like a wire clothes hanger had been rewired to like tie it up there. And, the water, oh yeah, well, it, and, and then it was a, it was a standalone like bathtub and next to it was a dehumidifier. But the plug for the dehumidifier was on the other side of the bathtub. So there was this electrical cord running around the bathtub in a very tight space plugged in. And so if the shower had just moved a little bit, it'd just be like pouring water all over the electrical cord. And, you know, I, I remember just, and the upstairs was like a shag carpet that we had to immediately get rid of. And I remember telling Nick, I'm like, you know what? I think there's more to real estate investing than some of the stuff we've been reading. You know, because we bought it for like the 1% rule, but then we had to dump in money to rent it. Like you, you wanted to bring your properties up and we had to, and we're like, well, great. We found this property that like meets the criteria on paper, but in real life, it was destroying us financially. We kept it and it's all worked out, 
but geez, those first few years, it was not a happy place. Well, and, you know, and, and, you know, again, I hate the stereotype, but I find that the inferior tenant profile tends to get people with poor credit scores because that's all you can attract. And those people, amazingly enough, that have poor credit score don't always pay you the rent. So if all of a sudden you find yourself spending every second month at the landlord tenant board back when they were open, um, it just becomes a very negative feeling and situation. Um, and, you know, we'll talk more about my, pro my portfolio now, but much, probably much like yours is during the entire 2020, 2021 timeframe, we had zero months of lost rent. We had a couple months where a tenant was behind by a week or two, but, you know, they apologized profusely and then they paid the rent and everything was fine. That's the kind of tenants I want to have. It was, it went well. It was good. So how did you, so to walk us through this. How did you get started into real estate? Why did you turn into a real estate investor? How did you get well, to that point in life? Yeah, my, 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 you know, again, I'm in my fifties now. So in my last life, I was uh, a franchise consultant with Pet Value Canada. And I also sold franchises for them as well. And so I bought a franchise in addition to, and, you know, and, me and my now ex-wife owned a franchise. My parents owned a franchise. My brother owned a franchise. Like that, I was all in when it came to that sort of thing. And I worked with a number of people that were changing their lives by buying franchises. That was, and, and I enjoyed that. So in 2007 or so, I decided to do a career change. I was just passing 40. Uh, I realized my, um, I had all these net worth goals I hadn't hit any of them. I had all of these aspirations of where I wanted to be. I hadn't hit any of them. And, uh, and so I decided with, you know, and I talked about it in the book, uh, I was introduced to the idea of becoming a realtor. And, and by 2008, I became a realtor. And, and I quickly gravitated to the investors because they were speaking my language. I was with my people. And, uh, and, and so I started helping others buying some properties and uh, in various qualities of property. And, uh, and I said, you know what? These guys aren't that bright. I should be doing it too. And, uh, and that's what happened. I started buying and the first one I bought was that sixplex in Coburg. And then I bought a rough, rough, rough two unit dwelling in, uh, in Oshawa. And, uh, and it was shortly after that that I joined the Real Estate Investment Network, which I know you were a part of for a while. And, uh, and I started learning, you know, there must be a better way. And there was, and, and that's really was my evolution. Well, in the book. So why did you decide to write this? I want to ask you questions about some of the things I've kind of dogged yeah. throughout your book, but why the book, why did you feel it was necessary to write this book? You know, when, uh, years ago, uh, before I was a realtor, when I had almost no wealth, even when I was a, in my twenties, I always involved imagine wealthy people as this, you know, this elite 1% crowd. And if I tried to enter into their world, uh, they'd be sort of pushing me down and, you know, kicking me down on the, you know, prover proverbial uh, wealth ladder. And, and I found that that was not the case. Uh, I had some really great mentors early on in my life that, uh, that not only didn't push me down, but they were offering me a lot of great counsel and advice and and really bringing me up the ladder and i always sort of had this um, image where if i ever made it to a point where i got to that level uh i would sort of pass it on to the next generation and that's kind of what was the evolution of this book was um and i mentioned this before the before we started recording is you know there's a million wealth books and a million real estate books out there 
But uh, most of them are focused on these, again, not that I'm begrudging making it on the buy. I want to get as good a deal as anybody else, but they're more focused on in a buy and hold acquisition. They're focused on the buy and they don't talk about that five, 10, 20 years of, of hold and, and, uh, and the challenges that are faced with that. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of these books are so complicated and, you know, it's hard to repeat You almost have to take advantage of grandma down the lane to try to get the best deal possible. And, you know, there are value properties available today on MLS all across North America. And you just have to do your homework and, and then honestly buying a great property, getting great tenants and just holding on to that property for a long time. And that's really where the genesis of the book came from. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So many people have told us, I think from about 2007 is when it got really loud that you can't find cash flow anymore. Mm -hmm. And then it really ramped up again in 2015, 17, and now again. And it's just, it feel like every year I hear that. So it's, it's cool to hear you say that you can find properties and they're out there because if you increase your education, which is why I, I love books like yours, because if you increase your own education and you understand how to generate income from something that other people do not understand how to generate income from, you can, not only can you find properties, you can pay even higher than someone else in the market's willing to pay and still make it profitable for yourself, which is how Nick and I ended up buying some properties because we would outbid people and they would think we were crazy but we knew what to do with the property to generate an income that warranted the price, you know, but I'm interested early on in your book, you seem to have, which is rare. I would find for a real estate book, you talk about gross domestic product and like some of the fundamentals like population growth, increased rental demand. Why is this so early in the book for you? Because usually in real estate books, this is like an afterthought. Whereas you have this right up front. Why, why yeah. is that right up front? Well, it's, you know, I, I, I kind of joke about it, but. And explain, and maybe explain what you have here. Yeah. So um, again, when, when I evolved as a real estate investor was when I joined the real estate investment network. And I, I go back to that and they were very kind to allow me to, uh, to, to put on their, their wealth, um, um, geez, long-term wealth. Uh, uh, I have it here. I have it here. I have yeah. It here. What's, what's it called? I just lost it now. The long-term real estate success formula. Yes, thank you. And they were they were very um, gracious in allowing me to to be able to uh, to put that on there. And let me explain what I'm talking about with that. Is you don't just buy where the properties are cheapest. Um, doing some little bit of strategy, doing a little bit of research, and becoming an insider is the is the comment that I use. You know, if, if in other industries, if you, in the in the equities industry, if you become an industry insider and start doing trades as a result of that, you can get into a lot of trouble. But in in real estate, it's actually it's 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 totally legal and totally accepted that the people that do the most research are in the best shape. So you know, don't buy a property this month in Oakville and the next one in Calgary and the one after that in Newfoundland. You know, really try to find a market that makes the most sense and and then start to, um, uh, as you do your research and, and what we're looking for is a property in a market that is growing. And so gross domestic product for, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast probably knows, it's essentially the sum of all of the goods 
that had been uh, manufactured and produced in that particular, whether it be a country or a region or a province or whatever. But let's take let's take Guelph, Ontario as an example. Um, it's an interesting stat when you see how much has been produced in that city for that period of time. But what really makes it very cool is when you look at it year versus year or even month versus month. And if we're seeing a town that's seeing growing GDP, it's then an evolution starts to happen. And the first thing you see is if they're producing more stuff, they're gonna eventually start hiring more people. And when they hire more people, you're starting to start seeing population growth. And when you see population growth, that's going to eventually, they're gonna want to live somewhere and they're gonna, they're gonna, there's gonna be extra rental demand. And when there's extra rental demand, eventually the rent prices start going up. And, and, and the evolution keeps going. Eventually, housing prices start going up. And it's a very logical process. But, you know, if you understand what's happening today in, in a market and you're doing the research and it's growing by leaps and bounds, you know that within one to three years, the property values are going to continue to rise. Yeah, and, and we're obviously fans of that approach. So the, the fact that you put that in there and called that out so early is meaningful to us. I think in Canada, sometimes the media here, they lose the story because if you just look at the immigration we have piling into this country and then coming in specifically to Ontario, yeah. if you just look at that population growth and then you look at the supply growth numbers of single family homes right across Ontario, it becomes this weird, like we've had over the years, we've had so many investors come to us and say, well, you know what? I heard you can buy in Arizona or Florida is now the time to buy. And we've always been like you saying, if you can get the insider knowledge here of this area, maximize that and do stuff right here and get that insider knowledge. So when we were able to kind of look around, I think it was around 2015 where this population story really started making sense to us. We, we thought, oh my gosh, why is no one talking about like the growth in population in the Ontario specifically? It looks like we're not keeping up with supply this is going to be huge. And it, it kind of pushed us out because at the time we were like predominantly in Hamilton, but we noticed all the things that you said. We're like, wow, wait a second. Tons of people from Toronto are moving out to Oshawa that never moved out to Oshawa before. And what's this place called Peterborough? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. what's happening in Peter? Why is the population going? And when you can front run some of these trends, when you understand these are the things to look at, it really makes real estate investing I don't want to say easy because real estate investing, you and I both know it's not easy, but it's, it's, it's simple, right? Logical too. Yeah. It's logical. It just, you buy in front of these trends and you kind of get the benefit. So it's huge. I just think, I just want to commend you for putting that in your book the way you have. Well, thanks. And you know, one thing, you know, going back to the Toronto story, um, the, the people who write a lot of the articles and they love the clickbait about, you know, they love talking about the word bubble. That's the favorite word of every, of every uh, article that's written in the Toronto Sun or a Toronto Star is, you know, is bubble, bubble. And what they don't understand is Toronto's in such a unique situation. Many American cities are, in fact, seeing a bit of a decline in value. But, you know, I'll use New York City as an example. And New York is one of my favorite cities in the world. But they've seen a tremendous population decrease over the last five to 10 years. And especially in the last year, it's been 
significant. So it will be logical to think that real estate values, if you know, if you can imagine, remember the old game of musical chairs, if all of a sudden there's a lot of chairs available and not as many people wanting them, the chairs are less valuable. In Toronto, we're seeing population growth unlike anywhere in North America. And in fact, the Toronto population growth in the last year and a half has been equal to the, the three largest American cities combined. Um, and so, yeah, we've had a bit of a blip in the last year or so because of COVID, but the trends are certainly still continue, continuing. And that's also happening all across all of the suburbs, the 905, and, and actually is spreading across even further apart, across Ontario. And, and that's what's causing the housing values to continue to rise. Um, they simply, you just simply can't build the properties for the price of, and, and do them quickly. When you talk about the increased labor costs, the increased material costs, uh, the increased land costs, um, you just can't get affordable housing built. So as a result, the housing stock we have currently right now is just going to become more and more and more valuable. And it's, it's, it's just logical. And uh, so getting some of that stuff is, is a good thing. So I didn't think I was going to skip to this so early here, but I now just because you've been talking about that, I want to, what do you, what do you say to millennials or people who are thinking about getting into real estate and they look around and go, Whoa, I'm priced out. I don't think I'm going to get in. And I know you cover this, but what's your approach in that? Because we hear a lot of that here regularly. Um, how yeah. do you tackle that? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's a real challenge. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that the percentage of people living in uh, owning their own homes is actually it, it surprised me when I learned this. But statistically, uh, the amount of people that own a home today is actually fairly comparable to what it was 50 years ago. Uh, but what we are seeing is people at the age of 30, uh, it's almost half of what it was as as someone 50 years ago, a 30 year old back then. And um, what I tell people is do things differently. They can't, you can't necessarily afford to play in the game where you buy that, that single family home as your dream home right off the bat. Um, we, we advocate buying, um, there's a term called house hacking. And I mentioned it in the book in quite a bit, actually. And a house hack is where you live in one unit and rent out the other. This gets you an opportunity. It may not be your dream house. It's not the place you're going to live the rest of your life. Get over that. But it gets you in a place where you've got a um, you live in a quality unit, you have someone that's paying half to, in some cases, two thirds of your rent or your mortgage expenses, and it gets you into the game. It gets you into real estate. Now, with regards to, you still have the issue of a down payment, and that's a challenge. But um, one thing that, that I talk about is the more research you do, the more education you get, um, many of your folks are, are currently maybe have a fair bit of equity in their own home. And this isn't like the, uh, the travel hockey um, expenses or, or borrowing that 500 bucks during college days that you have, still haven't paid back. Um, this is potentially even getting into a, a situation of a joint venture with your folks because many of them, they might have a lot of equity in their home, but they're probably getting closer and closer to retirement. And if you can come up with an alternative that that's going to um, maybe earn them some income, or maybe even, you know, they're planning on giving you money anyway, why wait till you're, they're dead? $30,000, $50,000 today could get you into a home. And, you know, the bank of mom and dad is, is, is going to really build a lot of wealth. And 
had had you done that a year or two ago, you'd you'd have had a good appreciation. I believe if you do it today, in the next three to five years, you'll see a real wealth build as a result of that. So you you still think in the next three to five years uh, that it'll be beneficial to be buying a property today from an, from and and not not from a cash flow point of view. I think you agree that you want to cover your you're you're, you're talking about doing the house hacking approach in your book, but the appreciation you think will still continue. I'm not asking you to, to, to read the crystal ball perfectly, but just your opinion. Well, and yeah, and let's let's go back to that that formula we were talking about. Um, I, I sort of make an analogy today where just because there was appreciation three years ago and one year ago, that doesn't in, a, in itself mean it's going to appreciate going forward. So what we look at is what's happening in the market today that's going to influence the next three to five years. And the answer is, is that, you know, again, I realize we had the one-year blip, but both the liberal and the conservative governments um, have both said they're looking at doing major, major immigration in the next few years. And let's be honest, most of those people are going in the GTA or, or in other big cities, but the GTA is going to continue to grow. And as long as it continues to grow, and as long as the GDP continues to grow, you're going to see more and more demand for housing. And as a result, yeah, you are going to see prices continue to rise. It's just, it's logical. It's just the way it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we agree. It's, it's always like, feels like dangerous talk talking about this kind of stuff, but uh, definitely agree. Okay. Why a whole chapter? Cause you have a whole chapter here about underwater. Don't let your investment go underwater. And yeah. this is where this chapter is very special to my heart because every, every property I own with my brother, Nick has actually leaked water. Every <laughs> single property, every single one that I've purchased with him has yeah. a wall has had a water issue. So we're the masters. When I when I had when I read in your book here, I'm like, oh, he's outlining all the different strategies on how to handle this. So uh, you tell, yeah, yeah, it, talk talk to us about this. Yeah, well, and you know, you've got me beat. I, I'm not hundred percent, but I'm probably <laughs> about eighty percent. So so you've got an A plus. I'm an A level. So uh, uh, same thing happened with me, and uh, and I mentioned this in my in my book as well. Is there were a couple of situations early on where the, the shiny object is I want to go in that basement, renovate it, make it look pretty, put in the, the vinyl click flooring and the granite countertops and the this and the that. And, and I do all that. I get in this great tenant and, and oops, um, the grading, it's basically a ditch all the way around the house. And the first big rainstorm water starts coming in, destroying all the work that I just did. Uh, I did that you do that two or three times and, and you start to think, huh, maybe I should actually deal with the water issue first. And, uh, and so that was, I think my, one of my greatest lessons is, uh, is that, and, and as I've done more and more research, I've learned that, um, that the number one claim in, um, in insurance companies now is not fire. It's actually water, water uh, damage, water damage. And, um, you know, if so you've... what's your, do you have a favorite strategy? Cause you outline a few, but do you have, I know this is maybe something we you didn't plan on talking about, yeah, but sure. do, you have a, do you have a favorite waterproofing strategy? Well, it, you know, honestly, the very like, okay. The simplest, simplest, honestly, simplest solution is, is fix the downspouts in the eavesdrops. Yeah, I was just gonna say eavesdrops, clean downspouts, um, uh, pushing it out six feet away and improving the grading. Like as simple as that, it's, 
It's not thousands of dollars, but just simply, and I make sort of a, a joke in the book I use, I don't know if you saw the cartoon where, where Billy's uh, looking, you know, he's grading the house. Uh, you have to read that, that one. It's a, it's a funny cartoon. So you'll, you'll appreciate it. So it's basically saying, I think you're a 10. And then basically he's looking at the house and he's uh, saying, you know, he's looking at the, he's trying to grade the house. So he's grading the house as a 10 because they, sorry. Um, so, uh, um, so, uh, that would be my number one thing, honestly, is just simply focusing on the, um, um, improving the grading and getting the water away. We, we once, didn't re go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Once you've done that and you still have an issue, then, then we, then, then they have to do some more involved planning is all I was going to say. So, yeah, we didn't know block foundation homes, just like they're basically are, they're porous. Like yeah. we didn't know, we didn't know that like block and we still buy buy, and we still have block foundation homes and there's no problem with them. We just didn't understand that like what's a poured concrete, it's a little different. A block foundation, just you're likely going to have water somewhere. There's going to be some crack that somewhere they're going to have to deal with. But on one of our student rentals is so old, it's not even black block foundation. It's actually some kind of pebble mixture of like cement with stones and stuff. Like it's crazy. I don't even know what you call this thing. Um, but uh, we had water day. The house never had water issues. And one day we were renting it out and uh, the new student moved in. And they were just freaking out that there was water damage in the house. We're like, we've never had water damage in this house. Like we know the foundation's old, but we've literally, it's been the driest basement. This house has been a winner. So I go there, they, they, they weren't there. I go to the house and Nick's like, check it out. Like what the heck's happening? I look outside the window, it happened to be pouring rain. When I go there, I look outside the basement window, which is small. And there's basically Lake Ontario forming because the ease troughs had broken and the water was just pouring out from the whole roof right to this one spot underneath the window. And there, I guess there's like a tiny kind of hairline crack in this cement structure. And water was basically just seeping into the, to the basement. So sometimes you have to go when it's actually pouring rain because you'll look around. You're like, I don't understand. Where's this water coming from to see these things? I went out with a tarp. This is how sad it is in the pouring rain. Went out with a tarp and just put it like in that area and tried to angle it up to get the water like flowing away from that. We had it fixed properly later. Um, and we got so good at these water damage things that there's a guy that we still know that he would, we would call him. He would just pull up to the house with the digger on the back and before we even you know negotiated the full price he's got the digger coming off the back of the truck and digging up the side of the property so you need a good contact like that you know but but one thing i want to share with those the listeners today is we're gonna it's it's anytime i talk to an another investor we love to talk about our horror stories. yeah that's true it's it's like a badge of honor about the worst things that can happen but why i, I actually spent a, a couple chapters talking about you know, if this happens, you do this, if this happens, you do that. And also running your business like a business and, and, and the things that you do, need to do to maintain your business. But once you get it up and running, um, it's, it becomes a real maintenance free in, investment. And I, I, I talk about the success stories in our book uh, and many of the people that have two, three properties, and we're not talking about the people that have 20 and 50 properties, but two or three properties can change your life and in, in many cases, it's taking them two or three hours a month in this side hustle that's making them a millionaire. And that's, and that's the, you know, will there be issues? A hundred percent. But, you know, even the property that you're describing, I bet you in the last five, 10 years, it, you've seen a pretty good appreciation on that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. I think in 10 years, I think, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's more than doubled yeah. in the last 10 years. And, and actually, and you're saying more than doubled, but the beautiful thing of real estate is you actually purchased it probably at 20% down. So your actual down payment was probably what, 60 or hundred grand, and then plus some renovation costs. So if it's doubled in, in value and gone from like a 300,000 or $400,000 property to an $800,000 property, you've made 400 grand on your $100,000 investment. That's a 400% return in five years. And I'm making up your numbers, but I bet you you're not, I'm not far off. You're, you're bang on. Not only that, we refinance that property twice, yeah. once to do renovations, to invest back in the property, once to buy another property. Yeah. So that property is responsible for the growth in another property. And it's been cash flow positive the whole time. So yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you. Why did you put in this thing about cap rates? And you make a comment here. I'm not going to call out which one that like, I just kind of laughed at. But because uh, I, I agree with it 100, percent okay. But you put in you put in this cap rates. What 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 what's what is a capitalization rate? Why do you have this chapter of cap rates in here? Yeah. So um, any if you ever go into your uh, your investment seminar 101 and you uh, you do that weekend seminar, they spend a lot of time talking about um, yeah, you should be getting a capitalization rate of eight percent and this and that, and they have all these fine numbers and it. It's very it's very professional. And so essentially what it is, is the, um, the money that's left at the end of the day, not including um, the financing of the property, but the, the money that's on paper that's left at the end of the day, um, if you divide that by the, the, the value of the home, that comes up with a capitalization rate. And so in, in a city like uh, Toronto, where when you and I started investing, we were hearing cap rates of five, 6%. Now we're seeing capitalization rates of two and 3%. And I'm gonna come back to it in just a sec to answer your question. Um, but, uh, and even in markets in the suburbs, we're still seeing very, very aggressive uh, purchase prices. And so why I, I, I really took that term to task is that many times the capitalization rate is something that is derived by the listing agent, uh, the realtor, or the seller. And shockingly enough, the, um, the, the numbers may not be 100% true, and they always skew towards the side of the seller. Just coincidental, I'm sure, that the seller is at the best advantage when they're putting their own numbers together. So I, it, it's a good tool. I'm not going to deny it. It's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually, it's a really cool tool. The problem is, is that there isn't a a directory and says the capitalization rate in Oakville, Ontario is 3.75. It just doesn't exist right now. And so, yeah, you can have some estimates and approximations, but the other thing is, is that they, um, you can have a capitalization rate that's a little bit higher, but it's, again, it's in theory. If you've got vacancies, if you've got people not paying the rents, if you've got all these things, again, when they're being listed at the time of sale, amazingly enough, it's 100% filled all the time. And so I just tell people, beware of cap rates because it just doesn't tell the whole story. And, uh, and then sometimes I, I, I make the joke, if somebody says you've got a cap rate of 10, uh, I'm tell, I, I'll, I'll show you a property that where the listing agent is lying on the cap rate. It just, it just doesn't exist. If the cap rate was that good, who the hell would ever sell that property? It just wouldn't be sold. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing because so many I have so many friends even that just get 
listing sent to them with these cap rates that look wonderful. And you dig into a little bit and you always ask like the, 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 the most common one for us when we were looking at different buildings was there's always like a bachelor unit that's not rented out, but they've counted the rent in the rent roll to make the revenue of the building look good to calculate the value of the, of the property. And if you go to visit the property or on the phone, you always get the answer like, oh, it's not rented out, but like you can, it's easily rented out. You can totally rent that unit out. But then if you journey to the property, I'll never forget this one on St. Clair in downtown Toronto. And we went to it because we thought, oh my gosh, this, this property looks amazing. But it had like three of these bachelors that weren't rented out. And we opened the door to one of them. This was a closet. Like it was a closet. They were calling this a bachelor. Somebody had installed like a toilet and a sink in the corner and built off like a, a little kind of privacy drywall wall that wasn't even a full bathroom. And the realtor there is explaining to us that you could put a Smith bed, you know, one of those beds that pops up and there's like a hot plate over here. And Nick and I were looking around, like you had to turn in a straight circle to even just look around this place. But they, with a straight face were saying, yeah, like you could totally rent this thing out. And we've included the rent in the rent roll to calculate these cap rates. So when I see you talking about cap rates and stuff here, I'm just laughing because it's so true. It you know, is. And, and, and what you didn't talk about, but it's just as true, is um, you, you look at the expenses that are projected. And amazingly enough, um, you, you look and you say, OK, they spent zero dollars on repairs and maintenance. They've spent zero dollars on snow removal and grass cutting. They spent zero dollars on garbage removal. And then meanwhile, you go see the property and there's a dumpster on site and they say, oh, we mow the lawn ourselves. And but you, you just can't do that when you're building a projection you yeah. just can't and and so the people that just take the agent's words for it they're the ones that end up buying a property it's not cash flowing what they thought in many cases in a, it's in a mediocre neighborhood and you're having a poor tenant profile and it just starts the vicious cycle of crappiness what 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 do you like most about because because obviously it's a it's an amazing wealth builder you know we're talking about all these funny things that go on in the real estate industry but back to your earlier point I personally like it because it's it to me, I always think of it as a business in a box. Like yeah. it's almost like a franchise, kind of like the pet value stuff that you yeah. were doing, you know, but I'm like, well, this business is interesting to me because it just sits there and the customer lives in it and they pay you every day for your business. And sure, there's the tenant board and stuff, but you just have this recurring customer. Yeah, there's no new customer acquisition or, or if there is tenant turnover, there is. But I mean, in general, if you have a tenant, you could have a tenant. We have some rentals where the tenant's been there for years and years and years. Like I've lost count how many years. So there's been no new tenant acquisition. The property appreciates, even if it's just breaking even, you're gaining equity in, in the property. And if the tenant moves out, there are so many wonderful ways to screen new tenants right now that there's a system in place to quickly find another tenant. And then with the demand fundamentals in the GTA here in Ontario, you're going to find another tenant. There's no doubt. So uh, to me, it's always like, wow, it's just a beautiful system. Like it's just this thing that sits there and you have income streams and it's a hard asset and it just, you hold it long enough. Even if you screw up, screw up like you and I have both done and we all, everybody has done, it just works over time. So to me, it's like kind of this systematic business in a box thing. It's the way I kind of look at it. How do you look at it just at a high level? No, that's, that's a brilliant way of looking at it. And, and so whether you're a newer investor or maybe you've got an established portfolio and you're listening to this podcast anyway, um, what 
what I've learned over the years is it, it certainly, it's a great wealth builder. It, it's um, with the leveraging opportunities and the, the lack of um, uh, properties that are in arrears, uh, it, it reinforces to me that there are so many other people that are doing it as well. It's a very repeatable process. It's not like it's a once in a blue moon situation. There is the, uh, the famous quote uh, uh, that 90% of the world's millionaires got there through real estate. That, that quote was done over a century ago, and it really still holds true today. And in 20 and 50 years, we'll be, we'll be looking back at the opportunities in 2021 and saying, geez, we should have bought more properties that year. Uh, so I'm still very bullish on that. But where I want to go with really quickly is um, um, it's early on, the quantity of wealth is, is, is what we all look at, no question about it. But what I've really focused on the last few years is my quality of wealth. And, um, and so we've actually sold some of our properties that have caused us the most inconvenience and focus on the quality properties in a quality neighborhood, getting quality tenants, and then holding on to them long-term for quality wealth. And, uh, and the, the quality of wealth is really the, um, it, it can't be overstated because we have a portfolio of, uh, of a dozen properties and we manage the vast majority of them ourselves. And we're still spending only a few hours a month on this portfolio. And, and it's, it's giving us the ability of retiring a decade earlier. Um, how great is that? And it's not like I started when I was 22, like some of these people have done. I'm in my 40s when I started. And, uh, and in less than 15 years, I've put myself in a position where I, I have all the choices I want and I've got steady cash flow. And when a tenant does move out with the increase in rents that have happened over the market, uh, I'm actually increasing my cash flow in some cases by hundreds or even a thousand dollars a month extra when I, when I get a new tenant in. It's a really great situation to be in when I've got these highly sought after properties in my portfolio in great locations. So do you think someone today who's listening, who might be in their early forties, who hasn't started, is the thing that they should be looking for the team that you discuss in the book, or should they look be looking at a source of frustration to give them the momentum to push and do this? Because when I look at your story, I feel like at the, there was a phase that you said you hit a right around 40 years old yeah. where you weren't hitting the goals you had set out for yourself. You weren't hitting, um, you know, some of the plans that you thought you might be able to accomplish, you must have reflected on yourself to, to be able to articulate that to me today means yeah. to me that you sat down and thought about that. And that likely created some pissed off moments in your life and some frustration in your life. And that provided, when I hear you say that, that provided the fuel necessary to create the momentum to get off your ass, not saying you were lying around, but yeah. to get off your ass and maybe go to some of those real estate investment network meetings and, and talk to a real estate lawyer and go and look at some properties and, and, and decide you wanted to jump in this. So was that the most important thing for you? You think finding that frustration to drive you or, or no, it was building the power team and, and, you know, finding the right properties in the right areas and that kind of thing. For me, again, every, everyone's journey is a little bit different. For me, I'm, a, um, I'm not a strive for success type of person. I'm more of a fear of failure. And, and I felt I was failing. So I, my story may be different than others. But uh, and in why, my why, case, did you, why did you feel like you were failing? Well, just 
again, I mentioned this in my book, but it's funny, you know, when you're 16 or 17 years old and people are asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I say, you know, Johnny wants to be a fireman and I want to be a policeman. And uh, my smart ass answer, I was, for those of you old enough to remember this, uh, there was a TV show called uh, Family Ties. And I was a little Michael J. Ke- uh, Michael J. Fox, Alex P. Keaton. And, uh, and I would actually tell people I want to be a millionaire. And that was my smart ass. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a millionaire. And so you get a couple of jobs, you get a couple of promotions, you meet a girl, you have a kid, you buy a house. And, you know, all of a sudden 10, 15 years goes by and you sort of say, what the heck happened? And, uh, you know, you kind of lost your entrepreneurial spirit. And so, you know, all of a sudden I wake up and I'm in my late thirties. I had a failing marriage. I had a I had a toddler child and, uh, and I had basically no wealth. And so, you know, I was looking for an alternative and, and I'd had some, I was in middle management, upper middle management at pet value. So it's not like I was unsuccessful, but I hadn't built any wealth. And um, um, I didn't know it at the time, but there's all these great philosophers like Jim Rohn that uh, basically he talks about, you know, you know, he, and I'm not going to quote him very well here, but, you know, I've been doing the same thing over and over. And, uh, and yet I've basically built no wealth as a result of that. And so I started thinking I have to do something different. And so I decided I wanted to go self-employed, but what is I going to do? And, uh, and actually I was buying the house we're in right now. And my uh, realtor, who was a manager, suggested that I join and become a realtor. So I started doing research into that. And, and honestly, the first property I bought, in, if, if I'm being totally honest, was just as much to offer me a level of credibility to my other investor clients as anything else. So I didn't necessarily do the, the research that I would have done today and that I talk about in the book. I just bought a property because it sounded like a good idea at the time. And, uh, and it just sort of evolved from there. So uh, my advice to someone is whether you're having a lot of the same story as I am, or maybe you, you've got a job you really love and you're having a lot of success with, but you you, you sort of joke and say, I'm on the freedom 85 plan because, you know, I'm not building any wealth at all. And I've got kids that are going into post-secondary school in a few years. What am I going to do? This is a great side hustle that if done well, a couple hours a week, a couple hours a month can, can change your life and can, can change your family's life. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. And, And you know what else I hear you saying and it's that you sacrificed because you had that moment in your forties, you could have kept doing what you were doing. It was harder to become a realtor, to walk into an industry that you knew nothing about, to to feel like maybe you didn't fit in with investors and that's why you bought a property, but you did it anyway. So you sacrificed a lot to for the longer term gain. So I think also somebody in their 20s, because I was just thinking as you were explaining your story, I'm like, what could you tell the 27-year-old Michael? to do it then. And sometimes I think life, you just have to kind of live it and, and, and go with it. But if you're, if you're in your twenties, if you're willing to sacrifice and do the, the house hacking that you're talking about, and, and, you know, we just had somebody on the pod, podcast, Connor Eagleson, he's in his late twenties. That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. You know, they're, they're up in Waterloo and that's exactly what he's doing. And if you're willing to kind of delay the gratification so that you don't have the fully your own home right at the beginning, um, the rewards for sacrifice early on are large. And I feel like you're just reaping the rewards of the sacrifice that you went through. Because if I'd imagine the years that you from 40 to, I don't know, 50, at least 50, uh, 45, sorry, or 47, yeah. probably were 
difficult and hard and there wasn't a spare dollar around and you were pushing it all back into growing what you were doing. So you were sacrificing for years and now you're able to retire 10 years early. So when you sacrifice, it comes back to you in a big way, but you don't see it. You know, you don't see it when you're building it and you go through years of looking around going, is this all worth it? You know, am I doing what I need to be doing? So uh, kudos to you, man. You made a big life change. Yeah, I appreciate it. One thing I might advise you guys to do uh, if you're looking to, um, um, to grow your wealth is the first step you should do is find out what your actual net wealth is currently today. And it does, I don't care if that number is negative 20,000 or a million dollars or whatever, but literally take every asset you own and what they're approximately worth today. And I'm talking about your bank accounts. Like, honestly, the first time I did a net worth Do rookie, analysis, ca rookie cards count? Like old rookie <laughs> cards? Can they I count? did not include depreciating assets. Of course, yeah. they're appreciating now. But yeah. I have a piggy bank that I literally oh, okay. counted all my change in the piggy bank just to try to make my number a little bit bigger. And then all your expenses, including your credit card as of that day. Yeah, I know you're paying it off in three weeks, but like an actual timestamp of what your net worth is. And again, it's whatever it is, it is, it's, it's irrelevant. Uh, but what really determines if you're making any difference in life is if all of a sudden a year later, or even six months later, has that number started to grow? And if it's not growing, what can you do to get it to grow? Um, I can tell you an aha moment for my wife and I was about six, seven years ago. Um, I thought, again, you're just plugging away, plugging away. You think you're doing what you're, you know, and, and honestly, I swear to you, my, I thought my net worth that year had gone up maybe fifty dollars to $100,000 because it was a good year as a realtor. And my values had gone up a little bit. But I ran the numbers and I swear to you, I thought I'd made a typo. And so I went back and I checked all my numbers and verified them all. And my net worth that year had gone up about $600,000. And I thought, holy shit, what the hell? And, and, and that actually was the deciding moment when my wife, Lisa, ended up quitting her, her six-figure income and joining as a realtor on my team. And, uh, and because now we had the ability of doing that, like she was making a great income, but we didn't need it anymore. And it was killing her. And, and so, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. We plug away, we plug away, we plug away, but it's nice to get a little bit of gratification every once in a while. And doing a net worth analysis is my way to do that. Totally. And you know, you know what a lot of investors don't do is if you do that net worth analysis, if you just take, let's say you have one property or two or three or five, pick an appreciation rate that you think is conservative, that might be true for the next 10 years or 15 years, and just plug that into your spreadsheet on your properties yeah. and work out what they'll be 10 years from now. And know that none of us have the crystal ball and it might not come true, but it sometimes keeps you from selling a property because Nick and I have often wanted to sell a property just out of a moment of frustration. I'm sure you've had the same thing. Like it's a good property, even just tenant vacancy at the worst time possible. And, you know, something else happens, water leak situation. And we're like, just sell it to yeah. sell that property. But if you sometimes put in the appreciation and say, well, wait, wait a second here. You know, the pain and suffering of dealing with this over two days might be worth $250,000 to us over the next yeah. few years. It kind of makes years, work. Yeah. yeah, it kind of makes work. You know, the day and a half's worth of work for a few phone calls. Yeah. You know, it, might, it might be worth it to make those phone calls, keep it, the property. It, it's so easy to, and, you know, and again, I, I, I talk to all the flippers that are, that are so proud of themselves that they're making twenty or fifty thousand dollars on a deal, and they did well. I've got clients of mine that purchased 
turnkey properties that were flipped and someone else made their $50,000 and now those properties and they've had an easy peasy tenant profile since they bought it, they're up a quarter million dollars or even more in the last five years. And meanwhile, it's the flipper that did all the work. So holding on to assets are so imperative in this industry. And I talk about that. Uh, I call it the triple crown club. If you can simply buy three investment properties that are not even cash flowing, just breaking even, covering all your expenses. You're living your normal life. You're doing your normal thing. You've got your nine to five job and you've got these three properties that take a few hours a month. You might even have a property manager doing some of the work if you can't even do that. And holding on to them in an appreciating market, if it appreciates by 4% a year for 10 years, that those three properties combined will build your net worth up by a million dollars, a million dollars in the GTA. How is that a bad thing? Like, you know, if, you know, you might say a million isn't enough to retire anymore, that's fine. But give me the million dollars if I can, right? That's, that's a good start. If you want to double it and turn it into six properties, great. But a million dollars is still, a lot of people don't have that money. So now what are you going to do? You have the book now. You you, you sound like you're semi-retired here. What, what's next? What are you going to do with yourself? You're young. You're young. <laughs> How many years well, left? What do you, what's well, the plan? If, uh, without getting political, if the government allows me to leave this province, <laughs> um, I, I hope to do a lot more traveling and such. I still do the odd real estate deal in the Durham region. Uh, our team, the Doors to Wealth team is still doing stuff. And I, I like to mentor people as best I can. Uh, one thing, um, if I can do a little bit of a, I don't know if it's even a plug, but if there is a realtor here or an investor here that's, uh, that's wanting to have a, a good one-on-one -on -one chat, I'm, I'm telling people if you want to buy 10 books of mine, uh, and I make a whopping like five bucks a book here. So just, I'm, I'm not going to get rich off of this, but if you buy 10 books of Doors to Wealth and, or uh, of the Armchair Real Estate Millionaire and give them out to your clients or whatever, uh, I'll either do a seminar with your, uh, with your peeps, or I'll give you a one-on-one -on -one call with, uh, with you in terms of helping you get going and investing or maybe making the next steps. Or maybe if you're an agent and again, I, I realize your team is spectacular, but if somebody's looking to become an investor agent, maybe I can give a couple of tips that, cause I've gone through the process a lot and uh, I'm just trying to help people and, you know, sort of pull them up another level as well. It's my way of paying it forward. And where I go from there, I don't know. I, uh, I actually, believe it or not, you're going to laugh at this. I actually uh, had a, um, uh, a one hour conference or a seminar with a, with a psychic last week. And she, she tells me that I've got a lot more books in my future and I'm going to be a mentor and a, and an author going forward. So who knows? Maybe oh, whoa, maybe. whoa. There we go. Career, <laughs> next phase, the next phrase of Michael Dominguez. There That's we go. Right. That's there right. My go. psychic tells me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I haven't done one of those. I went through a phase where Carol and I were, I guess, I feel like there was friends referring us to different things and we would do this. I haven't done that in like 20 years. Should do one again, just to see what they say. Those it are fun. Actually, it's fun. It was, it was it, it was very intuitive, and you know, and I, I I don't necessarily believe psychic ability, but she was extremely intuitive, and she picked up on things and suggested things to me that actually I mentioned even today in my because she actually put a lot of things in perspective for me uh, of why I'm doing what I'm doing, and uh, and again, so that in itself was valuable. I'm actually going to be going in September to a three day or four day retreat, uh, and. Uh, and learning more about myself. So cool. Awesome. Investing in yourself. You can never stop. So you never stop. You never right. stop. So I'm going to give out the URL here. It's armchairrealestatemillionaire.com. 
So armchairrealestatemillionaire.com. That is also the name of Michael's book. And uh, Michael, that's great, man. We, we, we covered, I don't know, a, a, a 16th of what's in here. So uh, great job putting this together. And thanks for sharing everything that you're sharing. And thanks for giving back the way you're giving back. I think if all of us do this together, we kind of help the community all around us and we all live in a better place. So thank you for doing what you're doing. You're absolutely welcome. It's available also on Indigo and Amazon if you're whatever, wherever you buy books. So, so I really do recommend you check it out. It, and again, uh, um, good on you guys for, uh, for, well, for you guys putting on this podcast, but anyone listening, uh, I think the, the Rockstar podcast is, is, in my opinion, one of the best that there is. And, and these guys do a great job in terms of educating. And I've attended a couple of their live seminars when we used to do those. Uh, and uh, we're waiting for the government. You're waiting for government approval to travel. We're waiting for government approval to meet again as a group. <laughs> yeah. And, and honest, if you have a chance to ever do that, it's a it's a transformational experience to go into that thing. Oh, and wow. I, you're too kind. You're too it, kind. It really is good. I'm, I'm, I, I'm impressed by it. It's a, you know, a, you, you shared off screen that you feel like you're, uh, you're going like you're a million miles a minute and you don't think you're doing it. I can tell you from the other side, I've attended a couple of them. They're pretty impressive. So yeah. Thanks for that, Michael. Appreciate that. So yeah, great getting to know you better. Yeah. We're going to have to see that convertible Corvette of yours one day. So we'll keep that in mind. We'll bring you in house one day to get you uh, to drive that Corvette down here. But uh, that's it. Appreciate this, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Michael. You can find more information about Michael and his book at armchairrealestatemillionaire.com. That's armchairrealestatemillionaire.com. And if you are listening to this and you want more books on top of Michael's book, you can get free copies of our book at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.